I actually have something that I sometimes call like a fatigue contrast where we're doing a plyometric and maybe someone's getting a lot of sensitivity around their knee joint when they do a, a hop or whatever it is. A fatigue contrast might be something like, okay, I do some leg extension, some hamstring curl mm, and yeah. some calf raises, and then I do the hop and it often feels better. That was David Gray and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Awesome to have you here. So we are excited to have back David Gray on the show had David back on in somewhere in the mid-100s talking about the foot and pronation. I had been struggling with Achilles issues a long time ago, and David was my gateway to getting um, mechanics of the foot to get things moving better. And as I've got to know him and learn more from him through the years, it's just been such a joy. David is the founder of David Gray Rehab. He works with clients from all walks of life, and his specialty is assessing his client's gait cycle in depth to develop a multifaceted plan to help restore their movement. David has learned from a number of great mentors in the world of human movement, athletic development, gymnastics, martial arts, biomechanics, and he's an expansive thinker. He blends so many elements of that performance equation together and does so in a down-to-earth manner. Always enjoy chatting with David, and we'll be getting to a show here on many things, but a short order list of what we'll be getting to today, we'll be talking about lower leg dynamics, some of the muscles of the lower leg, and how they operate upstream. We'll be chatting about bodybuilding-oriented methods, so training more of a muscular or a muscular strategy in that movement equation and how David has actually changed his stance a little bit in that area over the years. We'll be talking on how David keeps things simple in how he classifies exercise progression. We'll be talking about sensory awareness, fatigue contrasts, and finally, a ridiculously good summary on how David approaches knee rehab and health from a multi- factorial perspective as he really puts together his knowledge and wisdom that he's gained over the years into that multifactorial knee equation at the end of the show. Always awesome talking with David. Before we start the show today, I'm going to go through our show's three sponsors and then we'll get to an uninterrupted podcast. First sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. You may have heard Logan Christopher, who's the CEO of Lost Empire on this show, talking about strongman, mental training, performance herbalism has been life-changing for me. And if you want to dip your toe in that water, for free, you can get Pine Pollen, one of their flagship products. It's also in the Phoenix formula, and you can get that product for free with just a modest shipping cost. And to do that, head to justflypinepollen.com. Second, we have simplyfaster.com. I choose sponsors that I use their products, and I can rattle off so quickly the elements in Simply Faster store that I use on a weekly, if not daily basis sometimes. Those are things like the Freelap Timing System, BFR, velocity-based training, and so much more. If you have sports tech needs, sports data needs, training tool suggestions, timing systems, they are your stop. They also have an awesome blog, so be sure to check them out. Finally, we have the Elastic Essentials online course. This is my flagship product as I build out my vision of an educational system for coaches where I work to blend and integrate the ideas discussed on this podcast in the athletes and clients I train in my own personal training practice. The best place to start to see the integration of all that is the Elastic Essentials course. To check that out, head to justflysports.com. Click on the bright blue banner on the right. You can read all about the course, what other coaches are saying about it, some of the testimonials from my own clients, the results I've been getting with the principles you will learn about in that course. So excited about that, and I hope you get the chance to check it out. With that being said, let's get to episode 325 with David Gray. David, so good to have you back on the show, man. I know you were just in the United States. I missed you. I mean, you were a few thousand miles away, but uh, how was your trip? How was, how was being um, on the other side of the Atlantic? 
it was good, Joel. Thank you for having me on. I definitely have you to thank for like one of the people to thank for helping us do them trips and stuff now and them workshops because when you again when you invited me back on the podcast i think back about to the first time that we we spoke and you definitely gave me a platform and helped me get some of my ideas out there and also maybe because i think your your podcast is so popular and i think so genuine and stuff like that 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 it gave other people a chance to open their mind up to different ideas because your mind was open so i appreciate that about you and i and um thank you so much for that and it's great to be back again and um yeah, we did. We did well. We went to New York. I actually recorded my first in-person podcast there with Alina Canner from we talked all about PRI. Then we went to San Jose. We did a, a workshop there. So a lower limb biomechanics rehab and performance workshop two days with the progressive motion physical therapy team. They got us out to, to train all their staff and kind of get them all under one roof and, and teach them how I take someone basically from day one rehab, no matter what it is, lower body all the way up to like higher level plyometrics and then return to play. And then we went to Clearwater in Florida to Jeff Wolf, the Flexi Bull. He brought us out to his gym, beautiful gym, really nice, really clean, everything, like loads of space and stuff. And um, we had sold out one there where that was just, that was, a, that was our only public one. So all different coaches and therapists from all different fields. And we had people from fly from Canada. One guy drove 12 hours, I think, which... You could drive from the, the bottom of Ireland to the top of Ireland in about six hours. So just me appreciating the size of the States, America is, is crazy to me. So it went really well. I learned a lot myself and putting together the workshops. I learned a lot from that as well, because it's a tricky one to think about how, how do I take a coach who maybe works with like higher level athletes or a coach who works with more gen pop or like weekend warrior type of people or rehab people who work with clients who are in pain or, or stuff like that. How do I take them all under one roof and teach them what I think about this stuff? And that's tricky, but I kind of landed on something which was, which I talked about for a while, which is just developing certain skills in movement, breaking down skills and teaching people those skills. And regardless of who I work with, I will te- want to teach them all these skills are the skills that are more relevant to them. So that's kind of how I, how I did it. And I probably learned more than anyone else at the workshops, I would say, because it forced me to really put together a coherent, or hopefully a coherent framework about how I actually take clients and, and rebuild their movement or just make it better. Yeah, I uh, did a seminar this past July. And every time I've done a book or put together a course, and, and especially this last seminar, it's like you take all this stuff that's maybe been floating around or these notes that you've had, and it just, you take it and you have to put it all, one, you just have to put it all together again. And then two, you look at it, how it might relate to all the people uh, this time in person coming to experience this. And yeah, those have always been really powerful for me just to reorganize and reset my thought process. So I definitely hear you on that one. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's good. I would suggest, obviously, not everyone is in a position to go and teach a workshop, but even some of the people that I speak to where they're asking me like how I learn and, and stuff like that, like my doing podcasts has helped me a lot because you you have a lot of thoughts floating around in your head, but as soon as you try and verbalize them, you realize, actually, this isn't coherent at all. So I think even sometimes when I'm talking to people about maybe just learning or studying or, or yeah, just learning stuff, even after I watch a video or I'm trying to learn something, I maybe just go for a walk around my house and actually speak out what I'm trying to 
you know, just I, I even pretend sometimes I'm on a podcast. Someone asked me this question. How would I answer that question? And you realize how quickly your, your thoughts are just not coherent. But speaking them out really starts to organize it into chapters in your brain, I think. Yeah, I can totally see that. I know for me going for a walk, like there's a, a pond about maybe a, uh, just about 200 meters from my house. And sometimes I'll be working on a client program or something. And I'm kind of, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, all right, I'm kind of overthinking right now and I'm just going to go out and walk to the pond. And usually when I'm walking to the pond, like the answer kind of hits me <laughs> on the <laughs> way there back. Like that's usually my, um, that's kind of my mechanism to, to, to get things to fall into order a little bit. But I, uh, the speaking it out thing is interesting because I, yeah, we, we embody like it, things have to run through your body, through, um, emotion, through an action so often, you know, versus we'll just sit and, stand still and think you know do nothing and try and the answer try to come but a lot of times yeah moving the body talking something with the body is really helpful yeah that's and that's the same with movement you can talk about it all you want but then you put someone into a movement and all the cueing in the world cueing can help but like ultimately they need reps they need to get a chance to experience it feel it and then they can actually verbalize you know what the issues with that movement are for them or something like that so and again with someone in pain they can tell you everything about why they're in pain, what exact movement. And then when you just ask you ask them to show you, it actually just makes sense then. You just you just see it and it's like, oh, it's okay, it's that movement there. Yeah. I mean, that's just the thing about being in person training. And it's as soon as someone does a movement, I, I think it's it's just interesting. So often we're trained, it's like, okay, this is the position someone needs to be in when they sprint or jump, or this is the pattern they need to use when they squat or but then they're they're moving and it's like the process it's like this ocean that's in motion and it's never exactly not never but it's it's never exactly the way that you quote unquote learned it in school you know there's there's always interesting problems and nuances and i just i have so much fun trying to solve those problems i'm sure running a clinic where there's all sorts of people doing all sorts of different movements that is just such a a learning ground for for anybody yeah. really it's great because there's so much variability between people Every person, there's there's so much variability in terms of their structure, their training history, their injury history, their thoughts, beliefs, emotions, all that stuff. And then within that person, there's so much variability within each rep that they do. Even if the target is the rep should be the same, there's going to be every single rep is actually different within that person. So that's the true meaning of variability is like within that exact rep, within that exact squat even, every single rep is different. And I think people don't necessarily think of variability that way. They think of it as variety. Okay, I'm going to do loads of different things, but actually within a movement, every uh, within every task, every single rep is going to be different. Yeah. I think it was it was Sean Mishka who had said something to the tune of like, if you sign your name 10 times, it's it's going to be different every single time. I mean, my, uh, and mine is way different. It's almost, it almost, um, it would be interesting to look at how much change the average person has in doing something like that. And then their just their normal movement tendencies or their attentional focus or things like that. So yeah, the, that uh, level of variability or yeah. And you have to be very careful of what you put in the system too, or what they might be expecting from you. Like, Oh, this coach or therapist expects this. So this is what I'm going to do. I, I see that a lot as well. Exactly. Luckily I don't have to sign my name too much. No one wants my signature. I did have to sign some of the sorts from um from the workshop, but my signature is a mess. It's it's I never no one ever asked me to do it, so it, it's uh not good. 
Yeah, mine has progressively turned into just more of a line at the end over it's the years. A sloppy line <laughs> over the years. Uh, so for the first, I guess you call it official question, but um, I don't know if this is a coherent question. But we we could take it a few different ways. But if all the muscles, David, of the lower leg got into a fight, who would win? Who would win the competition between the soleus and the tibs and the perineals and the the gastrox? Who who do you have your money on uh, if we we have a competition there? Or just maybe a discussion on the just some of the lower leg muscles people tend to get overly excited about and some of the other ones that have, play a really mm-hmm. important role. I don't know about who would win because I'm big on like the intermuscular coordination and intramuscular coordination. So I suppose you could have a conversation around the intramuscular coordination and who would win. If you're talking about the lower leg, like who would win? The soleus, it would win. It's a shorter, thicker muscle. So it's, the, it's going to be much stronger if you look at running research it's going to experience, depending on the study you look at, like some people will even quote up to like 12 times body weight. I think the study I look at or I reference in my workshop has up to maybe close to nine times body weight. And with the interesting thing is with even with slower running all the way up to sprinting, the, even with slower running, the soleus has a lot of load going through it. So I think it even starts with something like don't quote me exactly on this, but like six or seven times body weight, even with slower running. And it only goes up to not only goes up to nine or 10 times body weight. So that's actually why I think plyometrics are so important and why you can't necessarily push someone straight from, okay, you're just doing back squats and calf raises. And now you're able to go for a jog because well, maybe you can, but there, there should be a gap that you can bridge between just kind of slower movements in the gym and also just going for a run. Because if you think that someone going for a jog is easy, it might be easy on a lot of muscles, but it's definitely not easy on the soleus. So especially, I suppose, if you have something like an Achilles tendinopathy or a calf, sometimes calf strains or calf tears are some of the worst because there's so much load going through that through that lower leg, um, even when you're going for a jog. So if you just want to be Blunt about it, like the Soleus would probably win. But again, it all depends on, they all depend on each other. And we've kind of got into a thing over the years of what the best muscle is. It's been the, like the TVA was the one, I think, back in when Pilates was, not when Pilates was big, it's still big, but the TVA was a big one. The Glute Mead has been a big one. The Glute Max has been a big one. Um, the VMO is like taking, getting a resurgence in recent years. The tibialis anterior is is the new big one, I think. The diaphragm has gotten a, a nice resurgence recently as well. And that's that's why I don't really like it. I do like some of the breathing work that that I do like giving a little bit of breathing work to people, but I don't I re, you will rarely hear me mention the diaphragm because people start to attach this magic muscle kind of thing to it. Um so I just think about like, can we get the joints moving? And if we're breathing fairly well, then the diaphragm is going to be doing what it needs to do. So kind of gone off on a little bit of a ramble there but they all depend on each other and if you do look at again there's another bit of research that i have in the in my workshop which is there's there's plenty of actually studies looking at pre-activation before the foot hits the floor so i think a drop jump is the study that i look at there i don't i unfortunately i don't actually know the exact name of the one so maybe i can get that for you and you can put it in the show notes i don't want to because it is really it is really good stuff but you'll actually look at the pre-activation before the foot hits the floor and you'll see that the the gastroc has very high levels of pre-activation before the foot hits the floor the soleus has very very little actually 
But then when the foot hits the floor, the soleus goes through the roof and the gastroc only goes up a little bit. Mm. So that kind of leads you to think about the importance of pre-activation, pre-tensioning. And if you don't get if you don't get the gastroc doing its job before the foot hits the floor, then and probably the distal hamstrings as well, then you're not going to couple that energy and you're not it's actually not going to be a plyometric movement. You're going to maybe sink down into into your knee joint a lot more and your ankle joint a lot more, and you won't be using your tendons as much. So, I just like to bring people's minds to, away from. We can definitely isolate muscles and strengthen them. I'm a fan of that. Like, I, if someone has a weak soleus, I'll give them a calf raise. Weak hamstring, I have no problem giving them a hamstring curl. But when we start to isolate phenomenon in terms of this is the most important muscle then I think we're going down a, a bad route and we're and we're we're starting to get confused because they all rely on each other. Yeah. You know, I was I was gonna say my money for that uh foot leg uh, lower leg battle was uh the plantar inner plantar or the lumbricals. They they got it down there in the interest no I'm just kidding. I, it is you're yeah. right, it is it is a symphony, you know, but I with the soleus it's interesting. I mean, I've, I know I had, you know, David, um, David O'Sullivan on the podcast a while ago, and you had mentioned you had mentored under him and, you know, some of those like the slouches and those things are awesome. Um, I've got, mm-hmm. had a lot of success utilizing those that really helped that soleus to stay activated. But one of the things, um, Darian Barr had mentioned this, Chong Ji actually had talked about like, who's the, the, um, hyper arch, the fascial lower leg. It talked about like the double calf was the term he had used. You'd see like a sprinter accelerating and, Randy Huntington mentioned the soleus too with uh, Su Bing Chan. And you see like, I mean, it's like from a general perspective, you could say all the muscles of the lower leg are like almost exploding out. They're all popping when a good sprinter is accelerating, is sprinting. You see them all activated or pre-activating, uh, like you said, it, it, when that leg comes down. But it's almost like the one muscle that does make that shape, if that makes sense, is the soleus because you see it like popping out on the sides if that makes sense i think i think mm-hmm. if people watch or see that frame of people sprinting they know what it is mm-hmm. and it's a pinnate it's a pinnate muscle so it's running out the sides and the, the gas rocks and um are running more <laughs> parallel to each other so that's why the that's one of the reasons why and this is to, to go probably too deep and and there's other definitely better people to talk about that but the a muscle like the soleus and the glute max takes time to produce force because of the shape of the muscle and the way the muscle fibers are running, but it's way, they're way stronger. And then some of the other muscles are more organized so they can actually pre-activate much better and, um, hmm. yeah, pre-activate much better. And so they're quicker, they can contract quicker, but they're not as strong. So it's just, it's just really interesting. But like, that's exactly why something like the glute max, Dave actually talks about this. And like, I think Dave is one of the best physios in the world. He's an, he's an absolute genius. He talks about just how much the glute max relies on the soleus down below. And I would say even before that, the soleus is relying on the gastrox and the distal hamstrings to pre-activate and um, synergistically co-activate so that they kind of hold the knee in place, the foot hits the floor. Then the soleus starts to build a lot of tension. The glute max is going to hip extend. It's really pushing me forward. And then the energy transfers from proximal to distal, and then the soleus is really pushing me forward as well. So those really strong muscles that you'll see popping out, they've relied on like all the smaller muscles to give them a time to do that because they need time. So that's what's so that's what's so interesting to me. And I know like sometimes it can sound like it gets into too much detail and stuff, but movement isn't simple. It's it is there is there is complexity involved, and we we 
hopefully can understand it a little bit more than just saying that this one muscle is the most important one. Yeah. I, I will have a question actually that I didn't have planned, but um, to ask you about kind of like that, you know, the Gary Ward joints act and muscles react. And then where is, where is the muscle isolation place in there if applicable? But I did, um, you know, you mentioned that, that chain of events, that kinetic chain and my mind is always running. I'm a macro to micro thinker. I have to see a big picture first and then I can like latch onto that. And then I can understand the pieces on the inside much better. And so, you know, as you were talking about uh, that chain of events, you have, you have the hamstrings and soleus or the hamstrings can set up the soleus that can set up the glute. And I look at, you know, Charlie Francis had talked about, you know, having a, a simple presentation that has a, all this complex stuff going on underneath it, or have a simple answer and have a complex backing. And I think about a simple exercise that checks a lot of those boxes or a practice is like an extreme ISO lunge hold as prescribed by Jay Schrader, or even, even a wall sit, the way that he would teach it is, is getting hamstrings. So like get in an ISO lunge position and then pull with your front hamstring. And then eventually uh, you can lift that front heel off the ground. So now you have hamstring, you have soleus. In the front leg, you have hamstring, you have soleus. Maybe you have even, I, I watched some of the stuff that Adarian Barr does with like even the standing um, on one leg inflection on bricks, which is a very like, there's going to be a lot of soleus in that. And you get the sensation on the foot that's helping some of those little foot muscles come along in for the ride. And so I, sometimes I think about, well, what are some very simple movements that can encapsulate some more of those, you know, and they're not going to be, you know, 100% perfect for everybody. I think we're always looking for that. What's the exercise that's going to solve everybody's yeah. problems? Because <laughs> there's not, that doesn't exist. But I think in generalities, one that can be very helpful is that ISO lunge with or wall sit or whatever with a hamstring pull. And then mm -hmm. when you can get that heel a little bit off the ground and get that soleus to come online. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can play, play around with like, pressure in various parts of the foot so more heel more midfoot more maybe taking the heel off the floor pushes it maybe slightly more towards the ball of the foot and that will change obviously as soon as you take the heel off the floor you're probably going to get a little bit more the, the calf and stuff so like you're saying I, I i keep it very simple the lunges that you're talking about i like to do like the, the movement that i have in some of my programs and that a lot of people have probably now seen is a foam roller bridge where you're lying on your back and you have your foot on a foam roller kind of in that the knee is quite extended, not fully extended, and you're pressed quite hard down into the foam roller and you lift your heel up. That gets a lot of calf and distal hamstrings working very, very hard together. It's, it's quite an aggressive exercise for the hamstrings. And honestly, I think there's no better movements than a variety of just jumps and skips and bounds and hops and all that stuff. Honestly, I think obviously you want to do maybe strength work to build people towards that work, but how do kids learn this movement? How do they learn to, when I look at my, my brother's son, my, he's actually my godson. Like when I look at him learning his movement now, it became, it was so disorganized to begin with. And like every step literally is kind of a fall forward and he's catching himself, but then he started to see things smooth out and now he's starting to be able to run. And that is really what's getting the muscles learning to work together. And we've kind of tried to break that down in the gym. And it's actually great for like that intramuscular coordination where you kind of get more un motor units online and you can get that muscle working very, very hard. But ultimately, if I had the choice, it would be a, like where you leave the ground and you have to come back to the ground again. Yeah, I, I know with the, yeah, with like the ISO lunge mentality as well, at least to my understanding, the way it's portrayed in Jay's program is it's just sit in the lunge and figure it out. And I think there's something mm -hmm. that's good about that. Absolutely. I mean, that's or necessary about that. I should not just good. It's necessary. But 
some people are going to take a really long time to figure that hamstring out a lot <laughs> and they need more points of contact like you said like they need that that i mean and shoot if i get into that roller bridge um position or even on the wall like my hamstring is just completely lit up like you can't avoid it and so yeah. even using that actually it might be cool to try that and then do an iso lunge like in sequence and see how that might change how people can leverage yeah. that exercise too i think that'd be really cool those type of exercises allow you access to a lot of sensation, which you're, which you're, you are getting in more dynamic movements. You, it's just harder to isolate that sensation, if you know what I mean. So yeah. like when someone is doing plyometrics or jumping or running, they are very, hopefully, like depend, if, if it's a challenge for them, they're very focused. And I think maybe John Kiley, I think maybe has spoken about this before where you're giving them a task a challenging task someone is very focused but they can't tell you what they're focused on so it's like i can't exactly say i'm focused on this this area whereas with an isometric lunge or the foam roller bridge or something like that they probably can tell you where they're focused on so they're getting that, that sensation and they can organize that a bit better versus dynamic movement they're getting a lot of sensation a lot of feedback but it's coming from everywhere it's not coming from one spot yeah, so that that actually will lead me to the question that well, I hadn't had it written, but I'd, I'd love to ask you is so you have the joints act, muscles react, but biomechanical concept. But at what point do and maybe you just answered it, but I would ask you at what point do you highlight like a muscle if you're working with a client and saying, hey, you know this muscle, you know what I'm saying? What point does that come up, and what are the like? I also would think about well, if I just did isolate a muscle. And look at that potential, like increasing tone in that area and then the potential impact on the kinetic chain. I, I guess what I'm trying to ask you is where does just muscles sit in that yeah. spectrum of the joints act, muscles react, biomechanics, and then all the way down to the just muscle side of things? Yeah. So just like I'm going to just strengthen this muscle. Yeah. Where yeah, does yeah. that where does that sit? Yeah. It's fairly easy and fairly obvious in the rehab world where it sits because let's say someone has an ACL surgery. So I'm going to build them back up. I know in nine months time, I actually, the client I had in before you, he's back in season playing hurling, which is a Irish sport, which for the US listeners is better than all of your sports. Um, <laughs> uh, it's like a cross, but much more bigger field and so on. But he's actually back in season now. But if I think about like, okay, nine months ago, we had planned that you would be back sometime around this time playing your sport. Then if I can break that down, and say, okay, before you go on to get back playing your sport, I need to get you doing training, on-field training where there's contact, all of this stuff. Before that, I want to do change of direction work, which is on not planned necessarily. You don't know where you're going to go, and uh, but you know, like there's going to be a task here. You need to chase the ball where I throw it, something like that. Before that, there's a lot of change of direction work, but it's planned. Before that, there's a lot of uh, intensive plyometrics before that there's maybe extensive plyometrics before that there's full body strength work like squats deadlifts all this stuff before that there's that's where we start to isolate a lot of muscles so like you have had a lot of you after post-surgery post-op you've lost a lot of muscle and you have lost maybe a lot of range of motion so we're trying to restore range of motion and we're trying to restore intra and intermuscular coordination so that quad is inhibited i want that quad to fire and start to build some muscle again but i also want the quad to learn how to work with the hamstring and with the calf again that's the part that some people often miss very early they wait till they get their plyometrics to work on that intermuscular coordination and that's 
I, I don't like to do that. And I think that slows people's rehab down quite a bit. So that's very obvious in something like an ACL rehab. Okay, we need to build up your quad. We need to build up your hamstring and we need to build up your calf and we need to build up your glute and everything else. Because again, like the soleus, before we get to this point, there's nine, 10 times body weight going to go through it. You're not, you're just not strong enough right now. And we can do isokinetic testing along the way to say you are actually in this isokinetic kind of leg extension movement. Your, your injured side is 40% weaker than your other side. That's obvious. And I'm just going to go to that thing and do a leg extension then. And it's more of a pain thing, which is like someone just comes in, they've been playing their sport quite a bit or who, whatever. So I'm in pain, like solve my pain for me, which just kind of cropped up. So like we have to start to look at obviously their, their training schedule, their recovery schedule, how all that is going. And maybe a muscle a specific muscle everyone loves to say this muscle is weak this is the cause of your pain we now know like that's just pretty ridiculous most of the time to to pin it on one thing but even if we can't pin it on one thing maybe i can just help them get a, a training stimulus in that area so if they have an achilles issue maybe i can just train the soleus most days it with like isometrics or heavy slow exercises which works on building the strength and also getting a lot of blood flow into the area to be honest in season I like to train people kind of like a bodybuilder a little bit with some plyometrics sprinkled in. So for for Dinny, for example, there, who was just who was just in with me, he will do during the week, he will try and maintain his quad strength as much as he can. But like doing too much, too much back squats just probably locks up his spine and his rib cage and his pelvis a little bit for a sport that he needs to be very dynamic and very mobile, let's say, but also very strong. So like I would just not put a barbell on his back too much now saying that we actually just did back squats and plyometrics so that's because he has a slightly lighter training week but like lots of quad work lots of hamstring work lots of calf work isolated and i don't need to load his spine and lock him up and then some plyometrics sprinkled in along the way so i know i haven't answered your your question with when does it come in but i suppose you just kind of look at the person in front of you and see do you look strong like you can you can look at an area and say do you look Mm -hmm. strong also with with tests like that foam roller bridge i'll use that as a test if someone can't hold that for five seconds then i will definitely say your hamstrings should be stronger regardless of how if you're in pain or anything like that i would love i think if you got the 30 and 45 second holds in this exercise on a single leg i think you will feel a bit better and like your hamstrings are stronger so i'm actually moving more towards the bodybuilding side of things where i just kind of get the muscles working and i I, i'm not kind of compromising the ribs and the pelvis and stuff I don't mean compromise. I don't want to sound that that like that back squats and stuff is a bad thing, but especially in season, yeah. bodybuilding, get, get the muscles, get getting a pump on and then maybe do some plyometrics rather than too much kind of powerlifting type of training. Yeah. Matt Matt Cooper uh talked about that on a I don't remember what podcast exactly it was. It was it was probably about two hundred episodes ago, but even referencing <laughs> like you watched Michael Jordan training back in the day. I mean, the guy wasn't doing back squats. He was doing mostly machines and then going and playing his sport. I mean, just think about the, all the aggressive and intense muscle activation or, or pattern activation that Michael Jordan was engaging when he played. I mean, and then, I mean, how much more, if you look at all that explosiveness, I mean, do you really need to go do, you know, back squats in season at that point? No, you're probably going to get what you need out of machines just to, and if nothing else, I've heard this mentioned is even reducing the degrees of freedom, just 
do something that's pretty simple and you know don't spend a crazy amount of time on it and then go play your sport that you're obviously being very explosive in already mm-hmm. and exactly. um yeah i think that i moved through i moved move through range of motion so like a full a full range kind of leg extension hamstring curl you know a glute exercise stuff like that i think I think I, I think that's very very valuable, and that's coming from someone who moved definitely moved away from the machine stuff in the past, and now I'm really, really um embracing that side again. Yeah, it is interesting to see how how pendulums swing back and forth. You were talking you know, in the beginning; it's almost like uh, if you took through history all the muscles that became really popular for a few years, we'd hopefully cover most of the body, and then if you've been following it the whole time, you know exactly what all those muscles do, and then you you know eventually were. It's almost like maybe there's a polarity like where from the the muscle training perspective we're just getting a training effect especially like in season and yeah squatting's awesome I mean squatting is in you know I definitely cater a little bit more towards the front squat side of things but squatting is in the vast majority of the programs that I write and whatnot but yeah. at the same time I also look at it as you know that that polarization where it's like on one end is kind of like the machines and this more simple muscular activation and then on the other end is plyometrics they're more complex and high velocity Sometimes it's good to put polarity in a program. Like I actually, a lot of times, I shouldn't say sometimes, a lot of times it's it's good to have a level of polarity or even plyos and isos. Like that's a polarity too, where it's just very simple on both sides. You aren't even messing with the middle for the time being. Maybe when the athlete's mm-hmm. out of season, we'll mess with the middle more. You know, it's, it's um yeah, just simplifying the equation. Yeah, they complement each other well. Like uh, for, literally, for example, there we did, we did, um, because it's a game week, so he's a big game this weekend, and then he has a very light training session tomorrow, and he hadn't done really any plyometrics for the last couple of weeks, certainly any more intensive ones than we did, I think it was like four sets of eight goblet, just a heel elevated goblet squat as heavy as he could go and as deep as he could go without sacrificing range into like five rounds of, oh no, sorry, that was part of the, so a little warm up, that was part of the five rounds, so four sets Five rounds, eight very deep goblet squats into like a double leg, more intensive pogo. So he's going for as much height as he can for about 12 reps and then straight into a, a hop variation where he's he's hopping. So he's going hop, hop, hop. And on the third hop, he needs to actually change direction so, and push back where he comes from. And he's going hop, hop, hop again, back all on the same leg. And just five rounds of that. That was the training session. And then he finished with some Copenhagen planks, some leg extension, and some hamstring curl and some calf raises just to get like all them areas kind of a pump. It took about 45 minutes, got some plyos in and stuff, which he had missed. Because I do like to keep, even though there a lot of people are getting their plyometric contact in in season, obviously, with their with their playing their sport, there's a skill of, especially with sli- maybe slightly more intensive plyometrics where you're going for maximal height, but with short ground contact times. That's a skill that, I think you can even keep in like a tiny bit of that. Even I really like drop jumps. Um, I'm a big fan of drop jumps, especially in rehab because it's like very structured. I know exactly what height you're stepping off of. I can measure your ground contact time, all that stuff. And like in season, I like to do like maybe single leg drop jump, three sets of two reps. And if they don't feel like they've done anything, but it just kept the skill of of doing that type of plyometric in. Um, so, so yeah, I that's that's where I'm at at the moment. I think. Yeah, that that small volume. I know, you know, Bush Nexator, who actually he's uh, he's in one of the questions I was going to ask you on keeping things simple, but he had talked about in season um, or in intensive practice periods for like basketball, doing a very you know doing a plyometric workout like every three weeks. Like, not it's not a huge volume in the grand scheme of the program, but it's still there. 
And uh, so that, you know, you, you kind of been talking about it already, but I think that it's very easy. And, and I think it's even, it's, to me at least, it seems like it's even more easy to get carried away with the complexity of the corrective exercise world than even, um, in my opinion, at least. And maybe that's just because I've been in the sprint and jump world forever. <laughs> so I, I, maybe I see it a little differently, but I think it's really easy to get carried away with complexity in in rehab and corrective type stuff and how um you know boo talked about how he kept keeps things simple in a speed program getting athletes most of the way there and then letting their own intuition basically carry them the final bit you know handing Mm -hmm. that baton off to them so to speak and so i'm just curious how do you look to keep things simple in that rehab and corrective if that's even i don't know sometimes i wonder even about using that word um that, I, I i don't use that word all right remedial it's just, it's just tra- it's just training and rehab yeah. is just like tra- to me rehab and training is the same thing to be honest it's just i'm meeting so- I, like what would you say if you're going to train someone you would say i'm going to meet someone where they're at and try and push them forward a little bit but i would say the same with rehab i'm just meeting them where they're at and i'm just going to nudge them forward a little bit then I'm going to meet them there and try and nudge them another little bit. So I just call it training. It's just rehab kind of, it's just a word that helps people understand that they're not doing their thing that they want to do just yet, but we're on the way there, but it's still just training. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it because even with the mental emotional connotation, we're doing rehab. You start thinking about like little TheraBand exercises or something and and you think about this like, because it's a continuum you always want to improve you always want to evolve no matter where you at you where you at no matter where you're at you want to get to the next level and it almost it sometimes kind of puts people in a box i mean again like you know you said like maybe there's more i mean i don't i guess there's more maybe sensation present on the lower levels of training that there's more sensation needed you're on the Mm -hmm. ground and then eventually you're moving to velocity. You're getting in the skips and sprints and gallop, high-speed gallops and all those things and mm-hmm. high-speed pogos. And so, I, yeah, I, I mean, I like that you make that distinction because I think that's important. I think people, um, it, it's interesting to see too, like athletes who they're almost in some ways like addicted to being in the sports medicine room, but then they don't carry that mentality out when it comes time to do their sport and train and hit it hard. You know what I'm saying? It's almost yeah. like that, that over, they've over categorized themselves with that end of things. Yeah. Yeah. You just need to help them understand like why what we're doing is relevant to where you want to be. And then you're right. Like I, I like to think of the scale of sensory to intensity. That's usually what we're working towards. But also I don't like to think of this stuff as a linear progression where we're starting with sensory and then six weeks later we're working on intensity we Mm -hmm. probably will be but that doesn't mean that i can't keep into some of the sensory work for sure alongside it and also if you think of a healthy athlete in season there's a lot of intensity there so maybe i need some sensory work sprinkled in which helps kind of bookend their session or just give them their body back what they need so i do like that sensory to intensity scale in general, in rehab, it is that kind of progression towards intensity, but that doesn't mean I have to leave behind the things that helped me three or four weeks ago. Maybe I take some of them along with me. Yeah, that's a good point. Is I, I do think in, in some ways, I mean, there, I've been thinking about this a little bit in the sense of um, almost like, like when an athlete is in their purest state, 
Like you could even think of an animal following its instincts in the wild, like a cheetah, right? Like, I don't know. What am I going to do to train a cheetah to be better? I, I don't know. I don't train cheetahs. But that <laughs> throw, animal... Throw steaks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's something that could be done. But I mean, like humans, we're, humans are the most complex creature on this planet. As such, we have more things I think that can go wrong with us. The same thing, reason all your, your, your digital you know, um, alarm clock has more things that can go wrong with it than a basic spring load. Pat Davidson had talked about that. And so it's almost like on some ways it's like, well, let's help. Let's show up all these things that might be dragging down this human complex organism so we can be the purest version um, of ourselves. And then maybe we don't have to do all that remedial stuff anymore. But, but like you said, I do think we need to come back to it from time to time. And one place that shows up for me, I, I've, I've had this idea recently that I've been working on and built. It's almost like, um, you know, we talk about complex like cir- training circuits or French contrast where you're doing like a, you might do a deadlift and then a acceleration and then a fast explosive hang clean and then throw a medicine ball really, really far that's light. And that would be like a power complex. But I also think there is some value and sometimes a lot of value in a complex that has a sensory piece in it. Like, hey, we're going to do this sensory movement to to give you a greater awareness of this part of your body or maybe make a small change on this part of your body like one thing i've been pairing up with squats is a like a foam roller hip decompressor uh that i learned from alex effer and that makes a big difference for some people but i'm like well you can't always have that stuff in because at some point like dan john has talked about like sometimes you got to put the foam rollers away at some point entirely and just freaking train and that's that is important but i also look at days where the nervous system or the physiology is just down a little bit and an athlete isn't running on all you know cylinders and they need something to bring them back. I find like pairing explosive movements with slow extreme ice or they are slow because you're pulling into them, but like long, just isometric hold positions where there's, there's just a total body sensation. You're aware of your breath, your muscles, you're pulling into the movement, you're getting a different physiological stimulation. Like I think, yeah, there's a lot of places that it can carry and stay with and you keep touching on it and you don't just completely get rid of it. So, yeah, I've been, I've been playing around with that stuff myself. I'm glad you had mentioned that, that you don't, you know, it's like, ah, we're, we're good now. It's all velocity. We don't need to come back to any of this stuff. It's like, well, no, maybe we should here at this point and, and, and use it strategically. Yeah, exactly. That's, and again, that goes back to maybe some of the bodybuilding stuff <laughs> like you're just... I actually have something that I sometimes call like a fatigue contrast where we're doing a plyometric and maybe someone's getting a lot of sensitivity around their knee joint when they do a a hop or whatever it is. A fatigue contrast might be something like, okay, I do some leg extension, some hamstring curl Mm, and some calf raises, and then I do the hop and it often feels better. Maybe the tissues are just warmer, more activated or whatever. But also if you bring those tissues to quite a bit of fatigue, the brain or the nervous system, not the brain, but the nervous system has to like figure out a new way to maybe coordinate those muscles together. And it's just forcing it to maybe pay a bit more attention or change the maybe patterning that they found. So I just think there's there's so many ways to be creative with that. And we don't know exactly what's going on, but um, I wouldn't I, I would I wouldn't leave that stuff behind for for too many athletes to be honest i would i would bring it with me and i definitely have it in my toolbox to pull it out and also it just keeps training fun it's a variety there yeah 100 i love that i love that you mentioned that it has like wheels turning in my head and a few in a few different directions i know and like you said like like just that use of corrective like that mindset like it's it's so much better if we can reframe these things just as they are training and Everybody, not everybody, but most people are familiar with those Werner Gunther 1980s training videos, this huge 
shot putter weighs almost 300 pounds doing all these plyometrics and and interesting combinations of movements and one of the it was in the you know they had their uh, periodization program they had different blocks gpp and the more of a muscular it was i think a lot of it was in like it was in german or maybe even french (laughs) and i was like i don't know exactly but this looks like muscle hypertrophy phase of some sort and they were doing a lot of like pre-exhaustion stuff so they would pre-exhaust the quads and do squats or something like that but even I think Boo Shexater had talked about like what happens, the specific effect that you get with like the muscle spindles or the sensory receptors when you do squats before like hurdle hops or something like that, where the squats might even be more fatiguing. And now there's an awareness piece. There is a sensory piece. And that's not to be the cool thing, too, is it from just a raw training, like let's just train hard perspective. Yeah, there's a muscle fatigue piece, too, that is physiological and metabolic that you also have to deal with. and. Mm-hmm. I think we always get, and again, I, I to me, the core of training is those just high quality, intense training days. But the, I, I think we often get so hung up on just pure intensity. Hey, I'm just going to go run uh, these, t- these three or four 10 meter flies and that's it. And that, I mean, it's a great workout, but it, it's almost like we're afraid of throwing a little fatigue in the system to see how the body deals with it. <laughs> yeah. and, and that you, that's you a know powerful why, training combo. You know why I think that is, is because when maybe Yuri Verkoshansky came out with the shock method and stuff, he, he he categorized plyometrics as maybe like something less than 0.25 milliseconds or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and anything slower than that, any slower ground contact time is not a plyometric. And I think a lot of coaches threw out anything slower than that is not valuable in our training, which... If it's it's really important to understand what is true. Maybe a true plyometric is something around that like shorter ground contact time, but that doesn't mean something a slightly slightly longer ground contact time isn't actually valuable. So maybe I can fatigue them a little bit, and the ground contact time is a little bit slower. But, but it's it's not like we 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 take the view that squats aren't valuable because they're slower movement. But so maybe like our jumps, our hops, all this stuff, they don't have to be big massive counter movement jumps but maybe sometimes they don't have to be so fast off the ground either and we can use fatigue to slow someone down and and they're just figuring different things out in their body certainly field sports track and field i can understand okay maybe i want a lot of short ground contact time but and uh, i don't know if you've talked to matt mckinnis watson yet uh, from plus plyos he do, he uses a lot of like deep tier plyometrics where he moves through a lot of range of motion and he's using jumps and stuff. And um, I have a categorization where I, I just I just categorize plyometrics into overcoming, which would be true plyometrics, and yielding, where is it just like jumps and lunges and and longer ground can, contact times, and I'm kind of sinking into the movements, and that can cause like faster stretch on the muscles, a lot of fatigue, and you can get a, a phenomenal training you can get phenomenal training from those movements and you can restore a lot of mobility from some of them longer ground contact times if you're just not always trying to be super stiff off the floor as well. Yeah, one of the things that um, I had worked with with the Darien Bar for a long time was just that idea of um, like dropping down into the movement and letting, kind of letting gravity take you and then letting the brain jump in and save you or just learning to really just work with gravity and, and learn to absorb. And I think that there are like, yeah, most sport movements are relatively low contact time or very low contact time. And even that's actually where I got in a little bit of trouble is in my own training was I, I would play basketball. Or I played basketball throughout my teens and then my early 20s for like pickup and stuff and just uh, more informal games. But 
once I got into my 20s, it became just all power plyometrics that a lot of those contact times were actually too long. And I lost a lot of the pop that I had from basketball. But again, I think that's where there could be a little bit of that polarization because I think that like Randy Huntington had talked about plyos as bounce training. Let's, let's just call it bounce training. Like, like the idea of let's not call this corrected. Let's just call it training. Uh, yeah. Plyometrics, if we call it bounce, then we really can polarize that end to, hey, you're going to get off the ground as fast as you can. But there is that other end where it's like, well, you do have to yield and absorb at some point. If all you, if you're a basketball or a football player or a soccer player and all you can do is bounce, then that's a problem because at some point you're going to have to yield. And there's also a lot of yielding too. I mean, you're at even in sport acceleration, you're at deeper joint angles and you are working with gravity to maybe not to a massive level, like you're not yielding like five inches off a jump landing, but there is a small oscillation still happening there. There still is a relationship with gravity. And anyways, I, I, I have polarized it kind of into that where there's like the bounce type, but then there is that you have to yield type. Uh, mm-hmm. And there is those two elements to it, or you're going to, you're going to be in trouble if you can't do both, uh, especially yeah. you can't yield, then you're really going to be in trouble. I really like that bounce. That's, that's good. I, I would suggest though, that we can be bouncy through, we can be bouncy through deeper ranges as well. So you can be, like you can go into a deep tier, like like math categorizes it. You can go into a deep tier movement and be stiff on the ground in a in a lunge position. You can like be really stiff and bouncy off the ground, or you can go into a deeper lunge position and be sinky into it. So it's just we we. I, but I do think when we when we thought of plyometrics, like everything has to be short ground ground contact time, which is don't get me wrong, incredibly important, but. That doesn't mean we can we we need to ignore all of this other stuff. And one other thing, it just especially in the rehab world, what I would say is we typically move from slower movements to faster movements. So you, let's take someone with an Achilles issue. I they've ruptured their Achilles or they've bad Achilles tendinopathy, or someone has decided they have an Achilles issue and they need three months of rehab type training before they get back into their sport. So it, you would typically go from slow to fast. And that, what that means is, I think that's a big issue because that means, hang on, you don't have an issue with your quads or your hamstrings here, but now you've taken all fast movements away from your quads and hamstrings and glutes and hips and everything as well, just because your Achilles can't handle it. So I like to use a lot of the yielding, yielding type of plyometrics, quote unquote, even though they're not true plyometrics, where I am dropping down. I'm not trying to have a stiff ankle where my Achilles is going to have to get a, a, an aggressive stretch. I'm dropping down and doing lunge jumps through full range of motion. So my quads are stretching fast. My glutes are maybe stretching fast, but my Achilles issue. So my Achilles isn't. So, Mm -hmm. and and maybe vice versa. Maybe if it's a knee issue, maybe I start with more overcoming stuff where it's a lot of ankle plyometrics. And then later on in the progression, it's more the lunge jumps because now my knee is moving through range of motion or my, my knee is going through more full flexion and extension. So I, I, I really think if, if I could only say one thing on this podcast, we don't just think about moving from slow to fast. You can have fast, you can have faster movements through a large range of motion to train certain areas. You don't have to wait for all the other parts of your body to catch up as well. Yeah, just in the, in the motor learning space, um, Bobby White was talking about how in, in teaching basketball players, just skills, just different shots and, and things that sometimes putting more velocity in the system actually helps them. It can get them out of a funk. And mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, it's it's good to not be just locked into that. Well, all we can do is slow mentality. I, I will say, too, it almost would be interesting if 
like for some of those yielding plyometrics, but like just like we have bounce on the one end, if we had almost a different term on the other end. I yeah. mean, yeah, like you said, uh, the the deep tier, McKinnis Watson with the deep tier, um, or you're just something like a one word thing that represents the goal of yield. I mean, I like yielding. Like it's like yeah. there's yielding and there's bouncing. You know, you're doing a combination of those types of things, even in a running single leg or running, sorry, running double leg jump takeoff. One leg is doing more of the yielding the second to last and then the last leg is bouncing off the ground and so yeah. it's like these these actions are are both present i was going to make a mention too with the fatigue thing I, I you mentioned like the ground contact times one of the things that i like doing and then i i've been working mostly with this myself but it also does it's getting in there more and more in the programs i write as finishers but i think about like the explosiveness i had playing basketball and you play basketball and you do carry fatigue and you still have to jump anyways right and but you still have to be quick off like you you're you're tired you run up and down the court you still got to block a shot and sometimes jeremy fisher a jumps coach was on like episode 18 of this podcast a long time ago and he had this thing called the 2 minute drill and again this is where we're mixing some of these constructs together but it would be like you're going to triple jump for 2 minutes straight from like a five step approach you're going to do your five step approach you're going to triple jump you're going to jog back and you're going to keep doing that and you start to get pretty fatigued try triple jumping in the last 30 seconds <laughs> and but i'll tell you what this is the interesting thing because a lot of people would look on that on the outside and say oh well that's just that's not high quality that's fatigue you're training a lower jump or whatever but you're only looking at it from just a linear perspective you're only looking at the output but what's happening go on the inside on that and i'll do this workouts that are similar like on single leg hopping even like i'll I'll stand on one leg for 30 seconds and do a, like a, a ISO hold hip flexor with the other legs in the air. And then I'll hop for 30 meters on that leg, stand for 30 more seconds, hop 30 meters and keep doing. I mean, you want to talk about like tib training? Like my <laughs> tibs are like exploding. But I don't I don't want to talk about tib yeah. training. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I, what I was going to say, though, is is um, after doing like that two minute drill and, and what and trying to stay fast, like even though you're tired trying to keep those ground contacts quick and trying not to break down and not to lose technique and trying to keep all the co-contractions running. And when I do like a single leg version of that for like a minute 30 or something, I'll do that on both legs. I'll wait about a minute or two. And all of a sudden, my legs feel like they do kind of after I'm done. And Jake Turris talked about this. After you're done playing pickup basketball, like there is like you are like supercharged. And there's a lot of things that happen in pickup basketball. But the like the, the feeling i get in my legs as springs after the fatigue dies down and i when i do a drill like that like I, i'm like wow that's there like that feels good like and, and it's 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 just combining and it's weird because a lot of people will be like oh that's endurance that stuff but anyways just to kind of to your point before about blending in a level of sensation a level of fatigue now i don't mm-hmm. think i would do that if i'm doing 10 meter flies i i don't think i would do that <laughs> hey let's do max like squat leg press and then go run at a 10 meter that's probably not a good idea you don't want someone popping a hamstring but i no. think some of the slower speed stuff especially the stuff that gets into the more like fatigable muscles like the soleus is pretty fatigable too i think that's important in that type of hopping drill activity yeah i think there's just some cool stuff there so yeah thanks for getting my wheels turning earlier too with what you're you're saying with that that blend of awareness and, and you then, have a you have a catalog of old episodes in your in your mind, Joel, with all like information that you could then like pull together from different different sources. It's very uh, very cool. It's very interesting. I just look. It comes back to what the what is the goal, and if the goal is being as reactive as possible, then you won't use that fatigue. But that doesn't mean that always has to be the goal, you know. So I just like to, I just like to try and use my. I don't think imagination, but I just try not to get locked into a box. And also, I think back of like. 
training Gaelic football where some sessions we would just we would just get like before our before our Gaelic football field had floodlights in the in the middle of the winter they they, they might have driven behind us someone one of the farmers would drive behind you in in a tractor with their lights on on the tractor and you just have to run and keep running around the field or you're going to get mowed down by the tractor but the next session it could be the exact opposite it just gives you again it gives you a contrast to say like this that was disgusting that was I was so fatigued and the next session it's just maybe the complete opposite it just gives you that contrast. And I think if you're always being reactive, I don't know, maybe maybe sometimes you just need a bit of fatigue sprinkled in and maybe that allows you to appreciate what being reactive really feels like the next day. Yeah. Yeah, that bit of that bit of fatigue. Like even like, you know, I've mentioned boost next here a lot, but like talk about achieving like light lactate. Like I think sometimes we just we just get so afraid of it. You know, it's like there's that's another just cool element to dump in the system. I think not all athletes see it as cool as I see it. <laughs> like no. run a 400 and run that last 100 meters. And I don't know how much you're going to be appreciating how your body has to now solve this problem. The of- <laughs> next day, the next and the following week, if you don't do that, you will appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, David, I think a good um, kind of turning point to start wrapping this up is, you know, I had a few questions. I think one that like kind of fits really well with everything we've been talking about is you know just kind of looking at the macro and looking at like a lot of times we want to look at this micro to solve a problem like all right my knee hurts what's a give me an exercise and I I, I mean you had a social media post I think about a multilateral uh, like what are the or I guess I should say this is just what are the like the multilateral keys on knee rehab or or trail let's just say early or I could re- redefine that to knee training. So multilateral keys to knee training as you see it. All the things to look at, not just this chain, this muscle. But if I'm just looking at the knee, knee training from a macro level and everything you've been learning, how do you summarize that? What are the main players there? I'll take this in a slightly different direction, if that's okay. Um, sure. So in the workshop, I'll talk about some of the skills that that I try and develop in lower limb rehab, which... A big part of that was developed because I had so many knee issues and I worked with so many clients with knee issues. So look at this through knee rehab, if, if, if you like, if you, as you're listening. So I'll just talk about some of the skills. So two of the big things that we want to, the big things that we want, if someone has either it was a knee injury or just knee pain. So we, effect, we just want someone to be competent, confident and competent at transitioning through the gait cycle, right? So walking, running, sprinting. And then if it's a, like an athlete or someone who I always say athlete, but I shouldn't necessarily say athlete. It's just a person, right? So it could be a normal person, a client who's trains once a week or wants to get back to playing tennis or something like that or an athlete. So when I say athlete, I just mean anyone. So also they might need to be able to deal with change of direction and deeper joint angles and stuff like that. Okay. So. I would just categorize that as just locomotion. They just need to be able to move through the world. So what are the key skills that they need to be able to move through the world? And I like to break it down into key skills. So the bigger, if you think of it on a macro level, it's like, okay, can they transition through the gait cycle, which you could break down into early stance, moving towards mid stance, moving towards max propulsion, and then late stance. I don't think about the swing phase too much because it just gets really confusing when the foot isn't on the floor. So th- that's what I want them to, to, to them to be competent at is all of those phases. And even if you think about lower, uh, deeper joint angles and change of direction, those phases will be still evident in a change of direction or in whatever, right? So in, in any movement, you could still break it down into those phases. 
So transition through the gait cycle. So what someone with a knee issue, what I'd probably teach them to do is I, I need them to be able to straighten their knee and bend their knee. Okay. So that's what I need to, them to be able to do. That in also involves, don't just think about that as a sagittal plane, knee flexion and extension. It also involves this kind of rotation, this relative motion between the tibia and the femur. So if we really isolate it, I need them to be able to actually move, bend their knee and straighten their knee, which involves rotations. Those rotations that also involve movements at the foot and the hip. So what I need them to be able to do is bend their knee and bring their weight onto their foot, which is more pronation, and then straighten their knee and kind of either go into early, which is more supination, or push off, which is more supination again. Okay, so we're starting to break down knee extension and supination start to pair together, and then knee flexion and uh, pronation start to pair together. Okay, so these are the more more isolated things that I want them to do. So what I will teach someone to do, the, one of the first skills that I talk about in the workshop is transitioning from early stance to mid stance. And that is allowing the shin to actually drop forward. So they so people typically with knee issues don't really want to bend their knee because that put, puts load into the knee. So the first thing I would usually teach them to do is how to actually transition from early to middle. You could think about that as moving from a straight knee to a bent knee. You could think about that as moving from a tibia that's in more external rotation to a tibia that's internally rotating. You could think about that as moving from more ex a, a more expansive position to a more compressive position, depending on the language you want to use, okay? Um, so transition from early to middle, let your shin naturally drop forward. Then I want to teach someone how to actually stabilize and stay in middle for a little bit longer. So middle is where we have least velocity. So this is where like a lot of the co-contractions and stuff come in. We need to be able to stay in middle for a little bit longer. A lot of people that you will see with knee issues, they rush towards their toes very, very early, and they never actually appreciate what it feels like to stay in middle on a bent knee. So skill one would be, this, this doesn't have to be like with knee rehab. It's not that I will teach everyone all of these things, but here's how I think about it. Skill one would be transition from early to middle. Skill two would be, can you stay in middle? Are you happy to actually stay on your mid, the middle of your foot? Skill three would be, can you actually pressurize the midfoot and push through the floor? So between middle and max is where the most amount of our push comes. So mid, mid, mid stance and max propulsion, that's where most of the amount of our push comes. It's really important that I teach people where their midfoot is and when that heel just barely breaks off the floor, how they actually push through the floor. Again, that's our internal rotation. We're most compressed and we're going to push our hardest. So I definitely want to teach them that. Then I need to teach them to be able to change levels. So that would be something like a squat or a lunge or something where they actually drop down. So we're going through deeper joint ranges. Okay. Also, you could think about that as moving from early to middle. Uh, so like middle in the gait cycle would also be that mo around that 90 degree position in a squat or something there. So now I'm teaching them how to change levels. I also want to teach them how to change levels fast. Oh, tell me now if I'm going too fast here or too slower. I want to teach them how to change levels fast. So like drop down from a squat or I'm up tall and I actually drop or sink really quickly and I have to change direction. So what that skill is teaching them is how to use momentum and decrease momentum and, and like get that faster eccentric and rebound out of it. Okay. So I need to teach them how to change levels fast. A lot of people with knee issues can't change levels and they can't change levels fast. So if you actually look at their squat, for example, it will look like a hinge. Because they, they mm -hmm. don't want to let their knee bend and they don't have that ankle dorsiflexion, maybe that pronation, that inter tibial internal rotation. So they can't change levels up and down. They just kind of hinge forward and back with their movement. 
So that all, so these skills layer on top of each other because if you can't drop your shin forward, if you can't move from early to middle, you can't get that tibial internal rotation, then you can't probably change levels. So that's another skill that I want to teach them. Then I want to teach them skills that those are those are really important skills that will teach them early on. And like, I don't want people to think there there is strength within all of these skills. So there's muscular strength, isolated strength, inter and intramuscular strength and coordination within these skills. So we're getting people incredibly strong as well, if we can. From there, I want to teach people kind of skills that will help them locomote and push from middle to max to late. A big skill then is hip extension before knee extension or without knee extension altogether. So actually how to get an active hip extension. So this is what we spoke about earlier, that glute max, that soleus is really driving me forward. The hip passes over the top of the knee and then I can straighten my knee. Something Dave O'Sullivan talks about a lot. That's what he's effectively trying to teach with a lot of the slouches and stuff is keep your knee a little bit bent, keep your shin angle a little bit positive and, and come down and up without letting your knee straighten back. So hip extension without knee extension or without or before knee extension, depending on what you want, what you want to do. Another one that goes along with that, I would call, I call it hip, hip flexion without knee extension. So that's more of a hinge. So I want to teach, teach someone to be able to push their hips back without letting their knee fully straighten as well. Because if they, their knee straightens, and I know this can be hard to picture sometimes, but basically just for people who are thinking about it, think about a hinge movement where we want your pressure of your to stay in more of the middle of your foot because I want to teach people to stay in middle. So if they hinge back and all the weight moves back to their heels and they get a negative shin angle, that you'll see people who hinge like that all of the time. They're not actually teaching good things to happen at the hip. They're really just lengthening the distal hamstring as they as they hinge back. So those two skills kind of are separate, but also together. So hip flexion without knee extension and hip extension without knee extension. Okay, so basically how to use your hips, all right, and, and keep your shin where it is, pin your shin there. Then I want to teach people about plyometrics. So energy, a lot of that is like pre-activation, what's happening before your foot hits the floor, which that's not me teaching them as in using my words to teach them. A lot of these things aren't me teaching them by using my words, but this is definitely not using my words. This is actually just exposing them to Okay, you're in the air and now you're going to hit the floor. So a lot, a big par part of that is there is a, te a big tendon piece to this, like where we're conditioning the tendons, but there's also, there's also a big neuromuscular piece where the brain and the nervous system is just learning how to coordinate these tissues and learn how to be reactive and ultimately learn how to couple energy. So like you, I come, I come down, I hit the ground. Hopefully I can keep my muscles in more of an isometric manner. So the tendon lengthens and I can use that energy to push me off. So that's pre-activation and energy, energy coupling, I would call that. So plyometrics effectively. And then I want to teach people locomotion. So you've learned all these skills and then becomes like, okay, now do 30 hops in a row for me. Same leg, off you go. Or change the direction. Like here's how you actually, you're doing a T-drill. I, I see people doing the T-drill, if you know, like you run out to the cone mm. and they do this side shuffle to the left. And then they, do, they keep their chest pointing forward. They do the side shuffle to the right and then they come back. I've never seen anyone who can't do that. My T drill is I run out, I change direction. Like I do a 90 degree cut. I hit the next cone, I cut back. I need to teach people the skill of how to pivot your foot in the grass, where your foot should. Again, I'm not teaching it to them. They're getting a chance to learn it by actually doing it. So there's, there's, this, there's this 
whip from the hip and changing changing where your chest is facing all that stuff so locomotion change your direction and then it's just layering on top of those skills it's just a continuous layering of maybe intensity fatigue volume and maybe noise in the system then as well so noise comes in the form of an opponent or a ball or whatever so hope that wasn't too confusing yeah. for people um and that's how i view rehab is, as skill development that that's why like i teach the workshops in that way because we just had a conversation about teaching someone how to move really really well that's what that was just about and that applies to not just rehab if i had a healthy athlete which i get all the time someone's coming to me and they just want to train kind of in this way i'll teach them them skills i'll teach them this exact same skills except i just won't be maybe as precise with the layering of the skills as in like i can i can do plyometrics today with them as well as some of these other skills so i'll just i'll just mix them up a little bit differently and also one last thing i'll say on that is that 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 is a nice progression of layering skills i think because one leads to the next needs to the leads to the next but i'm not afraid to like if someone is good at something already i'll just skip it and move on like i'm not afraid to to jump through these things and that's i suppose where the the art of coaching comes in a little bit as well so does that in any way answer your question 100 percent. i was actually gonna so my macro to micro mind was writing down some macro things that kind of maybe fit with that actually maybe i'll read them to you and you tell me what you think but like you mentioned um knee four it's make my mind works by association so you mentioned they need to be able to shin drop get their knee forward in space and so to me i'm like well that's that slouch exercise like dave o'sullivan knee forward and being able to get that are all derivatives. I actually have a few more questions. I, I'll follow up with that, a question on that. I will, I will just comment on that. Yeah. I would say that D- Dave's slouch would be more teaching someone to stay in middle. Uh, yeah, yeah, because it's, yeah, the heel's still on the ground. Yeah, exactly. They're just staying there. He's just putting the shin in that position and he stays. I don't use a lot of them slouches anymore, but that's that's exactly what he's doing. He's he's Whether he would communicate that in that way, probably not, but to me, he's putting someone in middle and keeping them there and forcing them to push through their foot in that way. Uh, uh, so you're, you've, you've, there's two skills there. One is like actually letting the shin drop so we can transition from early to middle. And then the other one is staying in middle. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I looked at that more from the perspective of people that I work with that have had a knee pain history and you have them do something like that. They just loved it straighten their knee right away like they, exactly. they they have such a hard time keeping that knee forward and then you watch them walk around a lot of times and they'll step and they're it's like their knee doesn't bend they just straighten their leg right away and i'm i'm looking i'm like how are you even moving forward right now and then how do you not know and then i'm trying to it's funny because then i'll start walking around and just start appreciating that my knee bends and like my glute loads and i'm like oh this is cool like, why can't mm-hmm. you do this? You know, like, I know there's different cues, too, that you can give people to help them get that idea. Because I find that there is a bridge sometimes between even that ability to, hey, let's get you in a single leg stance. Let's get your knee forward. Let's let's teach you to let your hip extend before your knee, like those slouches. But then how do you get someone to, to really embrace that in their locomotion? Like you said, like that, that's kind of the last stage of all these things in some ways is really getting it to all come together in all those steps you take, you know, five, 10,000 steps a day, because that's training too. <laughs> Hopefully we can not do all this stuff in the gym. And then you go walk and you just, you know, lock your knee out pretty much before you're even in mid stance. And it's also mm-hmm. interesting just how many more people I noticed doing that now versus like three years ago. 100%. And that's why, like, if you look at someone, someone comes into you, regardless of their issue, if you look at their injury history, and there's been a, a few significant knee traumas, 
you you really need to investigate that because if someone's not bending their knees anymore, they're missing out on so much potential. And, and life just doesn't feel as good if you can't bend your knees. Trust me on that. So that's something that you really need to re-educate that knee bend. And it's it's I spoke I actually spoke about this on my Instagram story last night where it's kind of a paradox because especially if you take an ACL injury. So what someone really needs early on is to build quad strength. They need to get like, there's a lot of inhibition around the quad. But if you think about it, the, the, the quad will get loaded when they bend their knee. And yet the quad, like it's a knee extensor, right? So even though the quad is inhibited, someone still won't want to bend their knee. So it's like the quad, to me, it's like the quad is on all the time, but it never gets that load and that strength and that mm. flexion. So it's a, it's a paradox where, you need to bend your knee to load your quad and get a true eccentric contraction. But doing that is what's causing you pain. So how do you mm-hmm. get that? To, how do you get that to get better? To me, I, I would suggest uh, allowing the shin to drop and restoring that tibial internal rotation. That's what feels good. And then you can load your quads a lot more. So basically, for people, anyone who's listening, if someone has a lot of knee traumas, you have to get that knee starting to flex flex in a nice way and extend as well. It's really important. And then, sorry, you know, I'll just make one more point because sure. I think it's important. I know I'm rambling a bit, but for someone like Gary Ward and Atomy in Motion, just because what you were, you were just saying there about the 10,000 steps a day and layer, like we can layer all the skills. Gary will say that you don't necessarily need to do that at all because when you make this small change, this sensory change in how they actually transition through the gait cycle, the nervous system like soaks it up a lot of the time and actually you just see them going for a walk and now they do bend their knees. And that could be within, that could be 10 reps and you've just showed the brain again, hang on, we have access to this a little bit and off they go. So it doesn't always have to go through all this, but um, I think if you're going back to sport, like it definitely does. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, it's interesting too, like, to think about the mechanism like i think someone could do that slouch exercise with basically it's a split stance in a squatty position and then you're doing a hinge over and keeping the front knee bent and not letting it straighten right away as you hinge back up uh, or it's not even it's you know rounded back hinge. it's kind of hard to describe on just without a video but it's interesting because I, I feel like some people might be able to pull that off but still if they don't have good tibial internal rotation I feel like it would be less sticky. Like the result would be less sticky when you actually go to a gate because in gate 100%. you're now it's, it's just more complex. And if you don't have that and it's, it's higher velocity. And if you don't have that tibial IR, you're probably going to revert 100%. more easily. Why, why answer your own question here now? Or you don't have a question, but why wouldn't it be as sticky if, if they don't have the tibial IR, what skill are they missing? So you've taught them how to stay in middle, but what skill are they missing? Yeah. If they, well, if they, if, uh, sorry. So they're good at so they're good at the exercise, but it's not it's not sticking. Yeah, and they don't and they don't have the tibial IR to match it. Is it what you're saying? And what's what's yeah? So they're there? missing a skill, which is actually transitioning from early to middle, which is where we get the tibial IR. Yeah. So you've exactly. taught them that, and you're seeing it's just they're still not doing it. It's because it's not the problem. Wasn't that they can't get it? It wasn't that they, like I can put them there, but when they go and locomote, they can't get there they can't transition from early to middle so it's the journey on the way there that the issue is not that not that like state of being in middle that the issue is yeah that's the cool thing though is i think so often we just want you know we live in this quick reward society give me this exercise you know just to show me this exercise that's going to solve my problems but locomotion is not just like life life is change locomotion is change and transition 
And there's more there than just do this exercise, you know, ABC, like even the way that Gary works in the, I mean, it is exercises, right? But there's a level of sensation in the way athletes process that sensation. You're putting wedges in to help them feel tibial IR as you translate forward. Oh, this feels this way. Okay. Now I can keep this feeling with me and I can take it with me as I go through versus well, if I just do, and again, I mean, I love the slouch exercises. I think they're freaking amazing, you know, but I think sometimes we get too hung up on just, just give me this one exercise and that's going to, you know, make mm-hmm. it all everything. Me better. too, but I, I love the slouch as well, by, by the way. I don't, I don't, I don't use that stuff too much anymore, but I, I don't, I don't mean to sound, I really don't want to sound like, um, again, Dave is amazing. I, that's not what I'm saying at all. It's just that there's different skills that we need to think about. Like some people might. I love that and then some people might struggle to actually get into that in the first place that's the problem yeah yeah for sure and i'm sure dave obviously has a lot of the the same things uh-huh. that are super 100%. advanced probably more advanced you get him on this call you know you're like hey what how do you get people to transition you know um yeah. but yeah then i had it so it's like you know translate the shit translate the shin and i think hopefully people hearing this start just watch how people's you know shins drop forward as they're you're just walking just walking and then um uh, basically my, in my mind, it was then do be able to do a squatty squat, you know, <laughs> be able to level change, be able to do a squatty squat. Like Ty, Tyrell had said a long time ago on the show, squat in a phone booth. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, it's, it, I actually put down, I, I like this as, um, Jeff Hauser mentioned it recently. He called it grouchos, but like a squatty run. Like if, if you can then run in that level down level change position, you basically cannot early extend your knee in a squatty run. <laughs> you can, I mean, you could try, I guess you could, but it's really hard to do <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah and so yeah. it's like yeah there's that and then and then bounce you know and then and then bounce and then be able to work that um yeah because if you have it all right and you can't bounce and the ankle complex isn't working well and you can't create that that bounce element of the polarity then that's a problem too so that's at least the way i wrote it out in my mind i hope that makes perfect. sense I'm, no I'm, perfect exactly exactly just that reactive strength using the using the te- that's that's the coordination of it Obviously, there's a te- like a connective tissue demand with plyometrics, but the coordination of it, people who have a history of jumping, they can just bounce because their 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 system knows how to preactivate and how to how the foot hits the floor when it should be on and off. And um, it's hard for people who don't have a history of playing sports and jumping because they're missing the connective tissue like strength, if you want to call it that, in development. But they're also missing that skill de- skill development piece and the the answer to the skill development piece is they need more reps but they can't get you can't give them more reps because their tendons can't handle it so you're in like a little bit of a conundrum so bringing up those both of those qualities at the same time is tricky but it's what they need yeah it's sometimes the answer is a little bit more complex but it's it that's just the rewarding part of it too you know like it's so rewarding to get an athlete that or or a, a, a human client an individual and take them through a process that helps them to find that that action you know that joint action and mm-hmm. yeah so I, i'm glad we could finish with the the summary of things i think it was a good way to kind of cap cap the episode off and oh. thanks again david i, I really uh, love talking to you appreciate you coming on and it was good having you on the show again uh joel you're a star i appreciate it and as someone who's just started a podcast that i'm only 40 episodes in I actually appreciate it so much more now because this is not an easy thing that you do. And um, I think you've probably the best podcast in the industry and there's so much gold there. So I'm just happy to be maybe a, hopefully a tiny part of that. So thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to another show. Awesome having you here, and we'll see you next week.